0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Elon Musk's pursuit of Twitter has put the social network in play, but does it have any natural predators? Meanwhile, DD Global is taking a drive out of New York, but the Chinese ride-hailing firm doesn't have anywhere else to go. Tune in as our columnists discuss the latest top stories. Welcome back to The Views room. I'm Peter Tharlarson coming to you this week from a sunny Canary Wharf in East London. This week, Breaking Views columnists have, like many other people, been debating Elon Musk's pursuit of Twitter. Meanwhile, our colleagues in Hong Kong have been looking at the fate of Didi Global, the China-based but US-listed ride-hailing firm, which is getting ready to cancel its listing in New York. First up, I talked to Rob Searin about Twitter. For the past few weeks, the social network has been at the centre of a drama sparked by Elon Musk's disclosure of a 9% stake in the firm. More recently, the Tesla boss announced a sort of offer which values Twitter at $41 billion. We unpick that bid and also look at whether anyone else might be interested in making an offer. Next, Jennifer Hughes and Robin Mack talk about DD Global. It's less than a year since the Chinese ride-hailing company completed an initial public offering in New York that raised $4 billion from investors. But amid growing tensions between Chinese and American regulators, DV has now announced it's delisting its shares, leaving shareholders stranded. Listen up. I hope you enjoy the show. Rob Siren, welcome back to the Views Room.
1: Hi, hey Peter. How are you doing?
0: Good. So, so here we are again talking about Elon Musk and Twitter now a couple of weeks ago when we last talked about this the Tesla chief executive had just bought a nine percent stake in Twitter and prompting lots of speculation about what he was going to do and then he joined the board and then shortly afterwards he decided not to join the board and then he made an offer for Twitter well a kind of offer so there's been a lot of noise a lot of discussion a lot of debate most of it playing out on Twitter, including involving Musk and Jack Dorsey, one of Twitter's founders, and other people weighing in. But where,
1: Rob, do you think this leaves Twitter? Well, they've said they are reviewing the offer. They haven't officially recommended or declined the offer, but it's pretty easy to say they almost certainly will decline the offer for a number of reasons. First off, Twitter stock was trading about 30% higher uh, last summer. So they can say, then the offer, so they can say, you know, look, this offer undervalues us. The other thing so this is, is course, this is the offer of was no, 54, $54, 20, dollars, was 20. yeah, right. so about
0: $40, $41 billion, something like that,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The market doesn't quite take the bid very seriously, either Twitter stock is trading about 15% below it. But the more important thing is that, you know, do you actually believe Musk has an offer on the table? The offer is, you know, it's not a binding offer. He doesn't have financing lined up. And the other thing is that just a, a couple of weeks ago, he had an agreement uh, to join the company's board and to not buy more than 10%. And they walked away with it w- within a week, with it within a few days. So do you want to actually tell your shareholders, sure, let's go with this if the bid isn't even there? No. Um, so it's pretty clear the board is probably going to decline the offer. But he's coming. He's the
0: world's richest man. Surely he can afford
1: $41 billion for Twitter, he, can't he? He can. He claims he's cash poor. He's borrowed against some Tesla stock. He still owns 17%, I think, of, it, of Tesla, which is you know a trillion-dollar company, so that's obviously a lot of money. He could afford it if he wanted to. The question is, does he want to? He would have to make a, buy an offer for the entire company. Right now, Twitter has initiated a poison pill, so that means he can't just buy more than 15% without, you know, making a tender offer or something. What does he do with with his Tesla stock, it means he probably have to either borrow heavily against it or sell a lot. He's sold, I think it was 16 over 16 billion last year. So, you know, mostly for tax reasons. So yeah, he could sell more stock. But of course, Tesla, you know, the valuations very high markets are a bit jittery now, especially with the growth companies. And if you have Elon Musk selling his stock, in tesla to chase after twitter that probably wouldn't be received well by the markets in that you know okay what is musk doing you know does he believe in the company is he looking to diversify or is he just chasing too many things spacex tesla boring company neuralink you know he's already got quite a few things on his plate normally a company in this situation what quite often happens right is that the company says well
0: okay we're going to run an auction Right. Anybody who wants to come and buy us, they can come and make an offer and we'll assess the offers and we'll we'll pick the one that's best. And there's been some talk about private equity firms possibly being interested. You know, you wrote a piece looking
1: at sort of some of the possible permutations. What was your main conclusion from that? Basically, that uh, probably no one should buy Twitter <laughs> for several reasons. Okay, so even Musk's bid, okay, which which is the lowest possible one. In other words, you know, like I said before, the stock was trading a lot higher last summer, so the board would probably want more on the table. Even Musk's bid, the return on that, according to analysis we did, is about a one percent return on investment. That's not very good. That's obviously not going to attract private equity into to making a bid for this. It's also a very large bid. I mean, it's a large company. Musk's bid was $41 billion. That's $10 billion more than I think the biggest private equity bu- uh, LBO ever. So private equity is not probably going to step up and buy this thing. It, Twitter doesn't have a lot of cash flow, right? I mean, you normally
0: no, got, you would you get a lot of leverage involved and stuff, But but that doesn't seem really like an option here.
1: Yeah, exactly. They don't have much cash flow at all. It's also variable. It's a consumer business. This isn't a sort of, you know, enterprise software business where you're guaranteed, you, you know, almost certainly that revenue is going to keep on going and going and going and going. You don't know that with Twitter. So it's a very risky thing to put a lot of leverage on. The natural bidder, of course, would be a big tech company. You can imagine, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or, you know, Microsoft, They'd all be interested in it. The problem is they can't, or they probably can't, because regulators have been, both Europe and America, have been taking an increasingly strict view of how tech giants run and whether they are anti-competitive. And for a big tech company to buy Twitter would probably be seen as anti-competitive, and you'd think that regulators would have a big problem with it. So they're probably out of that picture as well a smaller tech company might do it sure you know you, you can never rule everything out but twitter put itself up for sale i think it was 2016 and a lot of companies kicked the tire and walked away one of them was uh, salesforce.com uh, mark benioff the founder of salesforce he had a he had a funny story where he he said he fell and hit his leg and he started bleeding out and that made him question the value of the twitter bid more likely it was that when it, news of a possible bid by salesforce hit the market salesforce shares fell like five or six percent immediately and the company was like oh hold on our investors hate the idea and so they got cold feet on it with twitter's cash flow again still being poor like you said the one percent return on on a one billion investment you have to think other tech companies would be very hesitant to go out there and pay this much money for a company yeah so we're
0: in the situation then where maybe the, the bluebird doesn't have many natural predators, which I guess takes us back to Elon Musk. And I suppose we're just waiting to see whether or not he gets bored with it as he has got bored with other things in the past, cryptocurrencies and so forth, or whether he actually follows through on his offer, which, as you said, seems unlikely. Rob, thanks very much for your time. I'm sure this is a subject that we will return to in future weeks. But for now, thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Peter.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Robin Mack, and I'm here in Hong Kong speaking with Jen Hughes today about troubled Chinese ride-hailing company, Didi Global, which recently announced plans to delist from the New York Stock Exchange. Now, this is the latest twist in the Didi saga, which kicked off almost a year ago when just days after its $4.4 billion New York IPO, Chinese regulators announced a cybersecurity investigation into the company and since then, we have seen Didi's stock fall about 85% from its IPO price, while the investigation marked the start of Beijing's broader crackdown on Chinese tech companies, particularly those listed abroad. Now, Jen, you've been following these delistings quite closely now. So what is it about Didi that
3: stands out to you? Well, there's lots of things about TD that stand out because you mentioned the tech crackdown there. So it's a slightly different situation. But we've been trying to think if we've seen another case where a company has asked its shareholders to voluntarily delist without promise of where they might go next, where they're going to relist. And we're struggling to come up with one. I mean, TD said back in December that it wanted, it was planning to list the hong kong stock exchange and that way give people an out and then get rid of its u.s listing but that's not what it's doing now so the risk is you've got a bunch of small shareholders or whoever's still in this a bunch of shareholders who are going to get taken into the investing wilderness effectively and the hope that one day dd will relist somewhere and that's a big if right now whether they can or not
2: Right. So, I mean, in a lot of these delistings, you know, usually the company actually either goes private and then with a promise to relist elsewhere. But I guess for Didi, it's a slightly unique case. And why do you think that they haven't been able to tell investors where they're going to relist
3: eventually? As a journalist, I've never not wanted more information from a company. And GD has been one of the most frustrating because they, they put out very, very brief statements. So we're left with a lot of speculation here. The press release was very basic and factual yesterday. This is what they do. The statement in December when they first said they were planning to list in Hong Kong was something like 120 odd words long. It wasn't exactly expansive explaining to people what's going on. So my assumption is a lot of the time they they're not clear what's coming next. Now, separately to DD, but related, the CSRC, the Chinese Securities Regulator, put out a statement at the weekend that basically said, this is all up to DD, it's nothing to do with us. How much it's to do with the cybersecurity regulators, which have been causing DD all these problems around its data security, I don't know. I couldn't tell you, I don't know if anyone can, I don't think anyone can, whether this is about regulation or whether this this is DD deciding to just get the heck out of New York, go private, go quiet for a while, out of the public view, whether this is their decision or a regulatory one, I don't know.
2: I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's just a lot that Didi isn't really publicly saying at the moment. But I look at DD's shareholder base, and there's some pretty big names there. I mean, there's Uber, there's SoftBank, there's Tencent. What do you think, you know, as an investor, how should they be thinking about whether or not to vote for or, or against this delisting?
3: Well, I guess if the shares aren't marked to market, if there isn't a market they're trading on, it might make it a bit easier on the valuation front for these guys. I mean, Uber wrote off $3 billion in DD valuation in its 2021 accounts. Because it went public, then, of course, the shares fell, so it had to. There was no way around the way it could look at that. Now, I would assume that someone who was planning to take a company private would have gone to their big shareholders first and got their tacit okay for this. I mean, these guys... The soft banks and the ubers of this world, the 10 cents, they can sell out to some other strategic investor down the line. At the moment they are so far in the red compared to the IPO price that you might they, they can stay in and see what happens next. Now if you put them and the insiders together on a one share one vote basis, which is what this will be done by, you get 48%. They say they're doing it by ordinary resolution which usually means 50% approval. If that's all correct then and these guys are on board, this is pretty much a done deal.
2: So I guess the risk is that, you know, what if this voluntary delisting does go through, the shareholders they're just stuck with shares that basically you can't really trade maybe on OTC boards or pink sheets. But on the other hand, if it doesn't go through, then what would happen? Are they just kind of stuck in limbo where you know Chinese regulators are pressuring them and they have nowhere to go? Like what what is the end game here?
3: Well, I guess they start talking to Hong Kong again. If somehow they stay listed, and I don't think that's likely, they stay stuck in New York. Clearly, they want to leave New York and want to list somewhere else more conducive or somewhere closer to home, i.e. Hong Kong, again. Then they start talking again. Now, we know that their plans or their talks about listing in Hong Kong have been difficult in the past because they may not have all the licenses quite lined up in the way that the Hong Kong listing committee would like to see. But that would be their best alternative to Hong Kong at the moment, given they've got international investors who will struggle if it gets listed in Shanghai or Shenzhen.
2: Okay. I mean it it sounds like DD's problems are quite unique to the company. And you know, you've been looking at a lot of other US-listed Chinese stocks. I mean, what is this DD mess, like what does it ultimately mean for those other companies that, you know, are trying to leave New York
3: and relist in Hong Kong or Shanghai? I mean, it's too, it's too tempting sometimes to just describe DD as a car wreck. because we do like a good pun on breaking views. We do. (laughs) But it's part of this bigger picture. And if you give me a second, I'll just go through some of the delisting drama because it's the important background. It's the reason this is all happening. The Chinese companies often get higher valuations in New York. It also gives companies money offshore, outside of China's capital controls. New York is still popular and there are still companies from China who want to list there. But we know that at the same time there is this delisting threat lurking in the background. That from 2024 at the earliest, unless U.S. inspectors can inspect the auditor who did who signed off on the Chinese company's accounts, those companies can get booted off the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, and they will do, unless the political mood changes totally and China allows US inspectors to look at Chinese audits, which is something it hasn't ever yet done. So you've got all these different companies looking at ways out. The obvious easy ones like Alibaba, JD.com, NetEase, they were the first three to do, to list, do a secondary listing in Hong Kong. So they, their shares, the US and the Hong Kong shares are fungible. So they've got an escape hatch should something happen and they get kicked out of New York, then they've got somewhere to go. Now we're starting to see what Didi shows us is the more complicated ones, that uh, they're looking at different ways of doing it. And Didi's won, but recently we've had situations where sort of China's answer to Quora, um, Zihu, it was the first to raise funds. It's done a dual primary listing in Hong Kong, so it's got New York still, but it's also got Hong Kong. But it just sold secondary shares. So existing shareholders sold out, not raising a single penny of fresh money. It didn't need the fresh money, but it shows the difficulties for some of these cashed up companies, which listed maybe only last year, as GD did and who did, that they've got this cash. They don't need to raise more money, but they've got to get an escape hatch from New York or their investors are going to get increasingly jittery.
2: Yeah, and I I guess, you know, the reason that a lot of the reasons that, um, you know, these Chinese companies chose New York in the first place was that they couldn't even list in Hong Kong, right, to begin with, just because of very strict profit requirements and restrictions on dual class shares. So how are those companies kind of managing, you know, trying to list in Hong Kong?
3: Well, some of them are having to change their rules slightly as they come here. JD.com was one such, uh, had to sort of reduce the control that Richard Liu, its founder, had over the company, which was allowed under the New York rules, but not under Hong Kong. But more recently, we've got one coming up now that's applying um, to list in Hong Kong, Miniso, and they're actually unwinding their dual cast structure because. They're a retailer so they won't meet hong kong standard that only allows dual class for mostly innovative companies and it doesn't count a retailer as innovative so its founders will have to get rid of that they'll still have control but uh, we'll count that as more victory for shareholders
2: right, yeah i think that's really interesting that a lot of these hong kong rules are forcing these companies i guess to clean up and tidy up some of their governance but just, I guess, a, a, a broader question on, on this U.S.-China auditing spat. I mean, because we've seen this for years. I mean, this probably goes back a decade. And there's a lot of noise from both sides, you know, from Beijing and from regulators in, in the U.S. What, what are the re- latest developments and how serious is this
3: 2024 delisting threat? But we can count this as a 15-year fight now. The PCAV <laughs> began talking to China. That's the public company accounting oversight board. PCAOB. They began talking to China. This is the US audit watchdog. They began talking in 2007. (laughs) They haven't ever inspected fully a Chinese auditor and they haven't done a Hong Kong one since 2010. So yeah, this is way more than a decade. Uh, Recently, China did make a big concession just the other week. They put out this draft proposal where they'll drop a requirement that on-site inspections of Chinese auditors are done mainly by local regulators, which of course wasn't flying with the PCAOB, but they're also going to shift the responsibility for information security from the auditors to their clients. Now that's important because Beijing's big contention all along is that it considers audit working papers, sort of the paper trail of what the auditors have done to be state secrets. And so it forbids the auditors from handing these papers or handing them over or showing them to anybody. Now they're shifting that back to the companies themselves. So those are big concessions by China, but I'm not sure either of them are really going to fly with the US because Washington's been taking such a tough line on China. There's no political incentive to give an inch on that side of things. And also this could be a question over uh, sort of audit quality. If you're telling a company to hide the stuff from the auditors so it doesn't get into their working papers, that doesn't suggest the most robust of audits either. That's a separate issue, but I think it's actually quite crucial here. Interesting. All
2: right. So this it sounds like there's quite a lot of developments coming up on that front. Thank you so much, Jen, for taking time. It's going to really interesting stuff.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shump in Hong Kong and Sharon Lam in Toronto. Subscribe to Viewsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com. And on Twitter, where our handle
2: is at BreakingViews.